So we have another episode of the Change Africa podcast. My name is Isaac Kojede Nwabwa, and I'm here with my co-host Daniel Merki. And today, like always, we're going to be dissecting African issues, getting perspective of some of Africa's brightest thinkers and doers. And we have with us a person that I really admire, someone who has an expansive knowledge across African ideology, African thoughts, and a lot of other disciplines. He's a very interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary personality. We have with us Kwabna Ejari Yabwa, who has um, kind of uh, put his other name, Gideon, into... <laughs> he's put his other name, Gideon, into prison. But yeah, Kwabna, um, glad to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, and I look forward to our conversation today. So your Twitter profile says that you are an interdisciplinary historian interested in African history, STS medicine, public health, environment, digital, and public history. That's what it says. But I have known you for a while now, and I know that that transition to this, what I say, bio is a winding path. But hmm. if you were to describe yourself a year ago, what would you say, if not for this? <laughs> well, I wrote... <laughs> I wrote transdisciplinary. Um, it would be difficult. I, I would have said, I think, if I remember what the bio was then, it would have been um, believer conversationist. Um, a level of one woman, I think. That was the bio on Twitter before I changed it to this. So I would, I would say that I am on the path of having conversations. So I am an eternal conversationist. I try to... Um, have conversations, um, you know, understand. But as you as you've alluded to to that fact that I I don't think I particularly understand my journey. You know, um, it has been just a path of of discovery for me. And so I would have said conversation is because I think that is even true today. So what do you mean by transdisciplinary historian? Right. So. Basically, what I'm saying is that I, I take an issue and then kind of, so as just one person, I look at it from different perspectives of different academic disciplinaries. Um, so for example, in Accra, you have a situation of um, residential segregation that happened right around the 1890s up to the early 1900s, right? And you might think of it as just an urban planning issue, or it is um, something for the special historian to, to um, wrestle with. But really, what, what it started with was that right ar- around the 1890s, there was this idea that is even true today, that um, Anopheles mosquitoes were vectors of malaria. So the governor at that time in the Gold Coast wrote to a committee that, okay, how do we, you know, control malaria in, in Accra? And you know that old, old thing about the, the Guinea coast of Africa being the 
white man's graveyard. So that discovery was kind of to help, you know, control malaria. But when the committee wrote back to the governor, they said that, you know what, you have to pursue res residential segregation, you know. So that idea of residential segregation in Accra started with a public health pro um, problem. But if you look at it just from the perspective of urban planning, you miss the fact that there is idea of the body politics, for example. Because what the governor was saying, the argument he was making was that, you know what, the black body is a natural res reservoir for malaria and other infectious diseases. So if we take them apart, that means that we cannot be infected by these people. So that was why the residential segregation happened in Accra. But you don't, we don't, we didn't see it in the context of set, settler colonialism in Southern Africa, right? And so it stops at a, at a point in the 1900s. But what it does is that it, it has a legacy. When you look at Accra right now, you are able to tell which places have good resources, right? We are talking about um, cantonment, for example. We are talking about airport areas. But you, you realize that right in these places are so-called informal settlements that arose. So, for example, at the University of Ghana, you have Medina just close to it, right? So the Medina settlement became a labor reservoir for the um, for University of Ghana. You, you look at a place like airport, you have Numa, you know, Circle, um, Adabraka, which was um, a settlement for elite or middle-class African people have it close to Circle. So for me, when I talk about transdisciplinary, I am looking at one thing and looking at it from different perspectives, different um, disciplines. And so when I talk about resident residential segregation in Accra, then um, for me, I start with what the initial idea was. That was public health problem. But it goes into economics, it goes into architecture, it goes into urban planning. And for me, my approach is not to stop. You know, I've, you know when investigative journalists are doing their work and they say they follow the money? Yes, I think that is my approach, that I follow where the story takes me. And so that is why I say that I am a transdisciplinary um, historian. So it's basically trying to see history from the initial point of truth and the awakening, um, what I say, foundational um, concepts or problems that like build the foundations of the realities that we have today. Yeah, and I and I I feel that as as human beings we we are um, we are wrestling with the idea of problems, you know, right from birth. We are we are we we have to contend with that idea of solving problems, and I feel like problems are not you know. Um, are not native to a particular ethnicity or, or um, country or even physiological underpinning, you know. And so that is why for me, I try to also borrow from other disciplines, you know, so that um, you're able to understand. And I think, I, I think that that is the idea of um, disciplinary research, you know, in, and we go back and, and think about the Renaissance period when we started having these categorizations um, about um, art, science, low art, high art, you know, that kind of thing. 
but if you think back about somebody like Aristotle, he was the guy who defined the tragic hero literature. Mm-hmm. Yet, he's the same guy who gave us the law of flotation that we study so much in fictions, you know. And so, for me, I think we can be, um, be such, um, on th- these two different sides in pursuit of a certain kind of truth. But I also understand and have an, um, that understanding that truth could be an opinion, just like um, the late professor Kosiridu said. And I think from, from somebody who operates um, from the world, world view of Akan, I, I tend to agree with that, that truth is an opinion. And as much as we want the truth, um, I think it's difficult. So when I was, when I transitioned, when you're doing medical research, you, you say that um, you're looking for valid answers rather than accurate answers. And I think that the idea, I would say that I am in pursuit of valid answers rather than um, truth per se. But it's, it's not, it's not, it doesn't mean that I am being, um, I am being um, kind of not looking for that also. But I think that it's, it's the, the idea of truth is, is elusive, you know. And I, I rather want something that is valid rather than the truth. As, as, and I understand, you know, when you take it to a religious aspect, you have this idea of objective truth, which, I mean, as, as, as a practicing Christian too, it's, it's kind of um, it's, it's conflicting, you know, marrying my secular philosophies with, with that um, religiosity. But I guess I'll be fine sometime soon. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so two things that I would like to, you know, talk about from what you just said before we move into other discussions is this phenomenon of labor settlements adjacent or near to where more elitist operations are happening. What do you, I want your take on what do you think, maybe more of a futuristic take on what you think that Accra and other major cities in Africa that are continually becoming a hub for tourism, which is a good thing, but we are seeing that uh, the tourism is basically more akin to an evacuation of local settlements to um, high-end settlements of elites only, and how that will do for labor settlements in the future. I think it's, it's a question of how do we save capitalism? How do we save... Um, um, profit, you know, how people privatize um, resources, you know. And I think it's a difficult question that we need a little more of practitioners to be intentional about their own practices, you know. Um, and I really like um, somebody like Ibrahim Mahama, who, who, who is an artist um, based here in Ghana. He's shown two times at the Venice Vignale. And he has recently um, established three art centers in his home, uh, home hometown of Tamale. And he talks about this idea of the contradiction of the capital. So, for example, he, as an artist, kind of pulls um, jute sacks and then makes collages out of them. Some of them are sold through galleries, you know. And the money that he gets through the sales are what he's using to make these infrastructures and intervening in um, short-lived f- um, f- futures or visions, like Nkrumah, who 
really wanted to pursue this this idea of silos because of food security and stuff like that but couldn't um, do it fully because of the coup and so i think that it's a, it's a question about how intentional are we about the capital that we have you know and how do we want to envision the city it's i feel like now what the city how the city is looking like is that it's really a reflection of the inequalities that we have now you know and in inequalities i think would widen um, so we would we would we would have these people who are in so-called informal settle, settlement also claiming spaces in the so-called elite sites and so i think you see that somewhere in east Legon, for example where people abandoned houses are being overtaken by squatters you know and so i feel like that will that will be what what happened because now you also see these high-end buildings in accra especially around cantonments laboni and those places things that people allege that are, are built out of money laundering <laughs> you know accra has the tea on everything <laughs> yeah but i feel like that is what will happen that you still have this um, class war that um, we see in the special arena and you will see people try to make claims for spaces that um, high-end people are also competing for and it's, I think it's already playing out in Accra and all these places um, so it, for me what I would rather ask is how are we intentional about the capital how how are we thinking about the priorities of the capital how are we intentionally repairing where we take from you know and that i think is a whole conversation yeah you also say that you operate from the akan ideology or philosophy i guess uh, what does that mean um so historic historically we have this idea that intellectual history is born outside Africa, right? And when when the Europeans came in, you, you, you can see this very much in how medicine was treated. When you look at the 18th century medicine of, of Europe, for example, it wasn't any sophisticated. It wasn't more than what was happening here in um, Africa. It was primarily um, plant-based. Well, what happened? When they came here, they rendered our medicine a so-called fetish, right? And so, instead of asking what are the systems in place, why are these people doing what they are doing? Because it's clear in Akan thought that you could have a healer who is not a priest, a traditional priest. But every traditional priest learns the act of healing using medicine. Right, so there existed a complex, um, a, a, a complex system of thought, but because people were foreign to it and didn't want to learn, they came and imposed certain ideologies um, on it. You know, especially also because our medicine played out in in religious setting. But to operate from Akan is to also put aside into to. to um, Kind of, I, 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 I feel, I, I know how decolonized, <laughs> decolonized as a word is, 
as a word is using right now but it's true you know operating from the margins of world knowledge systems and putting it up at par with what happened in greece what happened elsewhere in the east of the world you know so really when i say that i'm thinking about ngubi who compared his series of lectures um titled decentering um i think moving the center or something or like that's so i forgot in the title but the whole um concept of the series of of essays was to say that you know what there there's no center of the world there are so many centers some of the centers were in africa some of the centers were in europe and it is just an imperialist idea to say that okay i hold maybe european enlightenment over what might have happened elsewhere in the world in africa or in asia so to say that i'm operating from a kind world view is to say that I value Akan thought, I value Akan philosophy, I value Akan cosmology as much as I look to the Western tradition um, of, 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 of Western intellectual tradition. So my substantive first question is that as a historian, what is history trying to achieve? Mm. You know, when, I, when you're younger, you think of history as remembering remembering facts you know 1955 this, this is what happened i think and my free into history is to look at analysis to interpret the past you know what happened um to to have this theoretical frameworks to look at how can we use the past as a material and i, I like the idea of using time as a material you know how artists go into their studios and they have acrylic and stuff like that and do painting i think that historians are like that also you know what do you do with the past as a material and that i feel you would have to have a rigorous um, methodological framework to to interpret the past and for me that is why this transdisciplinary approach works for me because i could take just a piece of something and look at it from different viewpoints and to make arguments that on discipline disciplines you know and for me that that is the interesting bit about how i think about um history yes yes yeah, i kind of had a similar question like isaac but i would still like to ask it a second time to really understand personally when you are describing that pursuit of truth is it is the focus like, um, is it solution oriented as you use that material to eventually be able to create solutions or is it more to spur the conversation or it's just a pursuit of, I don't know, expanding knowledge. your consciousness or knowledge? Um, I, so part of my, part of my um, approach to, to history and to my practice as a curator is this public facing work, right? And for me, that, that is why I think that the part that I did in journalism is really important, you know. And so the art of producing knowledge, I, I don't think, you know, I don't think, um, you know, the, there's this traditional view that knowledge, I don't think that knowledge is inert in itself. And if a scholar's work ends with knowledge production, I think it's okay because there will also be activists, advocates, and so on who would look at that theory or th that those knowledge forms and build up on it. But I would want to do public facing work. I, I really want to do work that, uh, that 
is impactful, you know. And so when I, I talk about the residential segregation in Accra, I'm also looking at how can we address the current issues of social inequalities? How, why is it that um, somebody growing up in the northern part of Ghana would have to come to Accra in order to assess opportunities? And, you know, and it's almost like it is a special marker when they come to Accra because you know where they are going. They'll go to Nima, Circle, uh, Medina, and other um, places. And it's almost like you have to come to those spaces in order to get formal initiation into the city. And so by talking about these things, we we also bring into the public consciousness what it means to enjoy at the expense of other people. Let's take the Akosombo Dam, for example. You go to Akosombo, Senchi, and we are happy. But we forget that when the dam was being constructed, over 80,000 people were um, displaced and they had to be resettled in different towns. Many of them never recovered, you know. Many of them are still living in abject poverty up to today. And that area is endemic of infectious diseases like cystosomiasis and others, you know. And so by talking about this, I feel it's a good opportunity for us to interrogate the past and most especially to look to the forward, in, um, the future, because I feel like there's a way that um, we can learn from some of these things. When we talk about Akosomo Dam, I think we're also talking about state-led capitalism, you know, how do we, how do we, um, how do we, how do we become intentional about some of these large developmental project who benefits you know how do we and i feel like it's also a difficult question because what the courts will damn get for us is to have to give us this source of great energy you know electricity we can't say we won't do it <laughs> but people will be affected how do we mitigate such effects you know and so for me that is what is i think is interesting about the field of history using that material as um, object lessons, as the Christian writer E.G. White would say. You've done curatorial and archival um, work as well, or at least you've used archives before. How important are archives for African countries and indigenous communities? And what is the intercession of archives and history look like? What does it look like? Hmm. That is an interesting question because um, archive is like official documents of the past, you know, and it's and within the context of Ghana, for example, it's almost like a past, you know, and so there are certain people who are not represented in the archive, and for me, the question is how do we write and create an inclusive, expansive histories, you know, so that we are not telling only history from the sanitized official rendering of history. And so then we have to think about expanded forms of... So the archive, of course, is an important aspect of, of the work that we will do or we do. But also, how do we treat oral interviews, for example? You know, how do we listen to songs? Because even up to today, when you go to Nankana, when you go to Nankana, um, in the northern parts of Ghana, there are songs that you you hear and know the impact that enslavement had on them, both 
Trans-Saharan and then the Trans-Atlantic. And so, how do we listen differently from how what we are used to, you know? How do we go beyond the archive, the conventional ways of telling history? How do we look at all these people who wrote petitions? For me, petitions are really important source of, of history because it is almost like the Protestants, you know, people who were brave enough to protest could write petitions. And they had all these counter-narratives, especially when you look at the Kosovo Dam and look at the petitions that ordinary, everyday folks wrote. It's also almost like a run counter to that brilliant, visionary pronouncement by somebody like Nkrumah, you know. And so by doing that idea of history from below, then we are able to at least move towards a fuller rendition of history. I would like to talk about art before we, we go back to other things. Uh, in our part of the world, right, and I mean the history of art itself, at least when you look at it from the people who own it, at least ownership of art, it's becoming historic. It has always been for some time, um, but more so in Ghana, a thing for the elite. I, the question I want to ask is, what is art and who does it belong to? Uh, I think that question will betray my philosophical leanings. I mean, if you pray from the left, if you pray from Marxist um, analysis, if you, if you, if you are an American pragmatist, you know, if you draw from that tradition, I would say that art belongs to everyone. And that idea is highly prevalent in what pertained, you know, in African societies before art was commodified, you know. Um, so when traditionally we had dancers, you know, poets in the in chiefs' courts and stuff like that, but the art that they produced was communal. Let's let's take um, the the song tradition song tradition from um, Rita, which Professor Nudahu and Professor Kofi and um, Aono graciously wrote about. When you go there in the communities, people build on the songs, right? So in the 80s and 70s, there was this idea that Kofi Awono plagiarized his poems, you know, because in his tradition, it was a continuation of what pertained. And so somebody could start with three lines, right? Somebody would add to it. Somebody would add to it. And then in those communities, they know that, oh, this song was made by Apollo, right? But in that worst imagination, if I am a poet and I'm operating, I would have to be attributed with that poem, right? And so when Awono came to that Western tradition of poetry writing, then there was this argument that, you know what, um, you plagiarized. And you know, one classic example of such a poem is um, Songs of Sorrow, where there's a recount of ancestors, right? And it and you see that that poem is um, a communal cry. It wasn't only 
I want to know who wrote that poem. It was many people, generations of orators, generations of poets who produced that poem. But that poem ended on the page as songs of sorrow and as a poem attributed to Awono. So we, we have to always wrestle with that idea. But I think that art belongs to the people. And as much as now art has been um, commodified, there should be, and, I, and that's why I like what is happening at um, Kwame Krumah University of Science and Technology, because at the College of Arts, people have started asking about how do we transform this idea of commodity to gifts, you know, such that people could actually benefit from art as a field and as a, as a practice. So by taking that idea, then we have to be expansive about what is even art, you know. And I feel like art is difficult to define now because now we have performative, we have all these that even workshops, even seminars could be art forms, you know. And so the question is how then do we use this gift of art, both as a practice and as a field? You know, to give to who this practice really belongs. And I come from the Ashanti region. When you go there, for people who really have eyes, as we say, Omoeni, they can differentiate between the kente. If you bring them, they know who originated it. They can say that, oh, these these clothes are made by the Ewe settlers who have come here. Oh, this is so-called original Ashanti kente. You know, and so people know, and for me, that is what we have to do at this point of history is to turn the academy on its head and to be asking different questions and let them call us radical. But let's ask those questions how differently can we learn in the academy? You know, how differently can we ask the questions that we've been taught to ask? How differently can we see? You know, and by asking those questions, we would be open to a whole field of answers, a whole field of inquiries. And, and if we ask what can us do, right, and then we begin thinking beyond the individual as a practitioner. We begin moving from the idea that Amako Buafu has sold one million, you know, uh, his work for one million, but really to for it to trickle down and see that, okay, Amakobofu is there, but how can Amakobofu's practice impact others who are coming um, after him? And so for me, that, 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 that is where we should move to. Of course, that is a leftist idea. <laughs> hmm. but, yeah, but Kobra, uh, so that speaks kind of to the, as, as the question that Isaac asked with the belonging of the art. But would you say there is a differentiation in terms of who controls art? Because I'm looking at the side of how public opinion can be influenced. And definitely, I would say within different groups, different society, there is a different, I mean, it's different of who controls art. So is there a differentiation from that belonging part? And then in terms of controlling, I think then it becomes difficult to just uh, state it as a public Good, because at the end of the day, there are people who have influence. Probably, what reaches. Are you are you talking about the narrative? Are you? Yeah, more towards exactly, and the control of the narrative. I mean, it's like what art do we see? Yes, there are people who go out there and actively seek what they 
consume or what they listen to. But then there's also a lot of people who, I mean, it's like kind of what gets to them. And that is my question in terms of who controls that and how that kind of differentiates from the belonging part, how your views are on that. Right. So part of the work that I've been doing um, is to be collaborating with Wikipedia user groups. And I know how problematic big tech is. <laughs> I know for sure. But as a pragmatist, I also tend to ask a different question. How can I use the problematic? You get me? And so the collaboration with the Wikipedia user group is to put Ghanaian art history on Wikipedia. So we are creating profiles on artists, um, art practitioners, cultural workers, you know. So we put Grace Kwame, who was really active among the first generation of post-colonial Ghanaian artists in the, in the realm of modernist art, you know. We have had somebody of like Francis um, Ademola, who I think owns the oldest, <coughs> sorry, the oldest gallery in Ghana now. <coughs> sorry, let me tell you. <coughs> who owns the oldest um, gallery that exists now? Um, so, again, for me, it's, it's, it's just going back to the public, you know. And, and when Nkrumah was inaugurating the Institute of African Studies, he he said this interesting thing about going to town, you know, and and if we begin envisioning the academy as a bi-directional relationship with society, then we can remove some of these barriers into what um, the narrative, who owns the narrative, for example. But also that means that we as practitioners would have to be willing to seed control to others because we are not only the tradition, um, the practitioners. We could be PhD holders, but it doesn't mean that we are the only practitioners of those arts. That means we have to go back to the people who really know and understand, right? And when we were growing up in in smaller towns, we had um, we had um, people who were very knowledgeable, like crowd who could. Um, recite histories of towns, right? So even at that level, maybe what we could do is to be creating community centers that communities could take control over um, their na the narratives. I, 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 I am wary of, even as a curator, that we, we leave so much of the narrative to the curator and the market to, to, to decide on. And I feel like by asking different set of questions, then we can come to different visions of who really owns the narrative. I think the narrative belongs to every one of us, um, whether we are practitioners or not, whether we are interested or not. Because I, I feel that, and I, it has happened to me many times, that the, some of the most powerful interpretations of art that I've had came from people who say they are not interested in art. You know? And that is also what contemporary art as, as, as a field offers us now, you know, because had it not been con contemporary art, somebody like me would not, you know, be taken seriously, you get me, because I didn't go to art school, I have been doing my science for how long, but then there's this 
this idea that contemporary art um, embraces all fields, embraces people, and it's it's almost like pushing us to look at different directions. And so, for example, when I wrote an essay for Ibrahim Mohammed's uh, monograph, I I didn't I don't think that I even saw his work for long, but I knew his work. Why would I say that I knew his work when I hadn't seen his work? I knew his work because I grew up in Asante Mampong. And Mampong is almost like a transitionary zone for charcoal articulated tracks, right? Articulated tracks that carry charcoal from Atebubu and Yeji. And when you study the Atebubu Yeji environment, they have these um, trees. And they are, they are almost also a transition to the north, so you don't have a lot of um, a lot of rainfall, and so that is why people prefer to burn trees around the area and make charcoal. So the main stopovers in Mampong. So as a boy growing up in Mampong, I was interacting with Ibrahim's work without knowing that in the future there will be somebody that I will write on his work because at Mampong Lorry stations there were these tracks that were parked there. And we as children just, you know, were playing around, maneuvering over the maze that the, those tracks had created. But I didn't know that my body was, was collecting material. I didn't know that my body was learning, you know. Before I even came intellectually, I knew Ibrahim's work. Just, and it, it isn't because we grew up in the same town or anything of that sort, but because I had a different experience with the material just as a boy growing up in a Santamampo. And for me, that is the interesting aspect of contemporary art and what it offers us. I think this brilliantly segues into what I actually was going to ask you, because I was going to ask you um, questions on the trajectory of the narrative and contemporary art. So it's a, it's a great segue. But my question is, on narrative, one of the ways of controlling in Daniel's West is art critique. And you, I know you say the narrative belongs to the people, right? But how do we kind of allow for art critique then to become public conversation and move it from the academia and move it from the writers and move it from the so-called professionals? That's my first question on this. Critique exists anywhere and everywhere, you know, critiques exist even among practitioners in traditional, because people have different ways of, of doing things, different ways that things work for them, and they are not, they, they are not necessarily conventional, standard, traditional ways of doing things. So, critiques exist inside and outside um, the academy. But I think that one of the things that we miss as a people, and this is not even restricted to Ghanaian and African people, is we need to understand that critique, critique is an art of love, right? And so if I critique your work, it's, it's because I love you so much that I took time to go and see it, you know, and to write about it. And that all these things are labor. And for me, that offering of labor is a labor of love. Right, and so we need to we need to we need to understand critique from that point that I can critique you and it's not it's not personal 
we can still meet in person and um, be okay and be friends and still have different ways of approaching things. I feel that that is what is missing in Ghanaian art um, community now, apart from genuinely writing. We, are, we don't even have enough of art critique in the academy, right? And so we have so many um, practitioners, you know, emerging from Ghana. And that is the danger also. Look at the Ghana Pavilion, for example. In 2019, it was almost, we were, as if we were, it wasn't 2017 or 2019. We were passive, the, the first Ghana Pavilion. We were passive in the narrative, right? And so we were there and we saw PR materials emerge. But we never got a good critique from Ghana. People were just hash, hash, hash around in the community. But nobody was bold enough to put something on the paper, you know. And that is also what is happening right now with the ongoing Venice Biennale. It happened, but people are talking about it. I, I've seen only one critique from Ricky Wemega, um, where, who, who has spoken about the selection of the artists and stuff like that. We need that. We seriously need that. And part of the problems that we've been facing with the, our work with the Wikipedia group is, is the politics of citation, right? So I know that certain artists were big in Ghana, were big as scholar practitioners, you know. I'm talking about somebody like Ousu Date, Eo Batimos, and stuff like that. But when you Google them, you don't find anything substantial on them, right? And so for Wikipedia editors from different countries, when you make these entries, because you have the background knowledge that even though I don't have good materials to cite, I know that this person is notable. But they on the surface are looking at who is writing about this person, how much is out there on this person. And so there is this differential knowledge production that we are producing solely because we are not rendering those critiques. We are not writing enough. We are not writing reviews enough. We are not positioning ourselves enough. We are not acknowledging the needed forms that we are producing here enough. And for me, that is the problem that we really need to think about that. Because even now, our narrative that we have from the art mainly comes from elsewhere, and most especially from PR professionals. I, I think I think it's very interesting when you bring the Wikipedia, because if you are a listener, you don't understand. That's how Wikipedia works. If you are supposed to write Wikipedia um, profiles, pages, whatever you are writing should be based on already produced knowledge that can be verified, right? So you need to cite. And this is a classical case of because we do not write about our arts, before, because we don't write about our forms that we produce, it is almost impossible for you to validate um, um, a, a Wikipedia entry. It's going to be difficult. I mean, those pages are going to be flagged and they won't have much credibility. So the question I have then is, where does this need to start from? And, and what are the roles of schools, for example, to play in that? As much as I respect schools, I feel that on an individual level is, is the best way to approach some of these things, you know. Because we know, we know it. We, it. Those things are in our communities. 
And when we talk about what contemporary art is, is doing now, all these artists are, are using materials that we know in our societies. They are using plastic bags that are everywhere in Accra and elsewhere. They are using jute bags, they are using uh, polythenes, carrier bags, and stuff like that. So these are things that we know. And so I would say that we need, and as much as this is important, professionalizing the art, we also need to deprofessionalize the art, right? So that you can have occasional writers, occasional critics, not necessarily people who double dub it, like who are involved in it for such a long time, you know. Just people producing unique um, perspectives. And to, to talk about schools, we need to decolonize the curriculum. We need to listen to ourselves. What have we been saying? And so when Western forms of education came in, that form was superimposed on our ways of knowing that we didn't take time to ask what can we take from this. And we know things. We know things. You know, for example, in 1874, John O'Neill was um, a surgeon, right, who was attached to the British um, battalion that came to fight the Asantes, I think in the Third Anglo-Asante War also. And then, when he came, he was stationed in Cape Coast. He started um, describing and writing his diary, um, describing the disease. But when you look at the original reporting that he did for a Western um, medical journal, he, the first sentence was that the disease was called Crocro among the natives of West Africa. So right in his test, he he admits that the people that he came to meet knew the disease. But guess what? If you read medical books, he said that John O'Neill first described river blindness. You know, but it was here for long that people had a name for it. Another example is Koshioko. Koshioko could only be described because Cecil Williams, who was a Jamaican white woman doctor, Learned from Gawumen because Koshoko is simply translated as this, the disease of the disposed child. Because there was this short child um, birth interval, people, the, the children were being disposed and then they weren't getting the enough breast milk and even care for them to thrive as, 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 as infant, infant. And so we have our ways of knowing in medical system, in political system, in social systems, in economic systems, how do we extract these knowledge forms? How do we learn these knowledge forms? And for me, that is the question as practitioners working in 2022, we need to be asking ourselves, how do we decolonize? How do we bring our subjectivities into the academic form, into the academy? How do we make ourselves seen? And by that, I mean that we are decentering. We are saying to the whole world that there wasn't one trajectory of medicine development. And much of what happened in the West in terms of medicine was something that was already happening here in the South or in Africa. For example, 
It was in Boston that an enslaved person taught his enslaver how to do vaccination, you know. And that process that he taught, taught him is what now in COVID time we are vaccinating. That basic idea came from an enslaved man in Boston. And how did he know? He said to his enslaver that this is this was what we were doing to protect ourselves against smallpox. And so by that exposure in Africa, that enslaved man learned something that by transatlantic enslavement took it to the West. And when it transformed Western medicine, it is just saying that, oh, the idea of vaccination came from Boston, you know. But it is more than that. It goes deeper. And we know that in India, similar um, ideas about vaccination was happening there, you know. They were these forms of surgeries that we were doing, especially among um, immigrant Hausa um, Baba Muslim practitioners. That was that, that all these things were happening here, but we seem to have forgotten that we too are human beings, we too are practitioners, we too are producers, and then we forgot that you could actually carry this forward and. And for me, that is what contemporary practice gives me the opportunity to reclaim some of these things. Yeah, but I mean, the, I mean, it's very interesting because it kind of, this answer is very interesting, but it also goes back to the control of narrative part to, to an extent. Because the way I was now looking at it is like, okay, we, brought, we have brought up the example of Wikipedia. So might there be the possibility that, yes, of course, we need more critique, we need more material talking about or writing about um, our producers, our creatives, and so on. But could it also be that those kind of platforms have been developed with um, the knowledge and insight of the Western world and therefore inherently work better for them? And could it also be the task to maybe create platforms that Speak, uh, are more in line maybe with our way of uh, moving history forward and uh, like keeping history and uh, speaking to like are in, aligned with maybe how we moved on knowledge and history through time versus how it is done in the West. So I'm trying to figure out because you work about the citation groups. So I'm trying to figure out do you think there is a way also that there might be a need for different platforms that we need to create. Yeah, I mean, as I alluded to earlier, that I start as a pragmatist, I start with problems, right? And so I know that <laughs> that construct, the, the philosophy behind that is a Western one. And that if I, with that worldview that I have, if I go in there, I'll have problems. I am well aware of that. But to answer your question directly, then we can look at people who are working in glitch feminism, for example, which is, I think is really an interesting um, field that is emerging, how women of color are using the, the digital, the, the internet, you know, to glitch history, to glitch practices. And they are forcing us to look at things differently. And I think that is an important um, um, thing to look at if, if we are going directly 
um, for me to answer directly to, to yours. And there are also alternative platforms that have been built. Um, um, uh, there is this professor at University of Ghana, um, Institute of African Studies, I, Obadeli, Professor Obadeli, who, who has a platform, I think, um, a Kwantu or something of that sort. That that is almost like um, uh, Naraland or Ghana, where you know that people talk um, actively about some of these things. And he himself is an active teacher of African worldviews, you know. And so things are happening, but I, for me, I just choose to deal with the problems, you know, involve myself with the problems. What Cornel West says, the catastrophic. I I really like that. The cast. I like problems, you know, because I think that that is a way for me to think. And so uh, as much as I, I, I appreciate the, the problems that those platforms offer, I, I like to contain the rest of that, you know. And I know Audrey Lord says that you cannot break down the, 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 the house of the master with his, his own tools, but you know what, I'll try all day. <laughs> Um, back to contemporary um, art. Can you give us, I mean, if you have an idea, a brief history of it in Africa, in Ghana, and how that is making, you know, back to the conversation, how that is mainstreaming arts and bringing it to, to the masses? Globally, you know, in terms of in terms of timelines, tam- they say that um, contemporary art emerged from the nineteen seventies, right? Late nineteen seventies. So that is when we have that. Um, but in Ghana, academic wise, um, in Kenya University, then we are talking about somebody like Karika Chasidu, who um, began looking at things differently because the curriculum that was inherited hadn't changed much from the the colonial times when the art school was really formed, and so he started asking different forms of questions. You know, what what could art be? What is the potential of art? You know, such things, and and he opened up really the space for his students. You know, to think differently, to think about things that um, people might not have ima- imagined. In the 60s as part of Ghanaian art canon you know but who knows what we would have what we missed in that time you know who knows because the frame the historical framing just admitted certain kinds of people right so i wouldn't even say that because when you look at somebody like um kofi Dawson, whose work of very contemporaneous when he started looking differently at materials, he, he was first among the first batch of of students to be admitted for the degree BFA program at Kenya University. But he was very much contemporaneous, you know, the way that we would, we would um, we speak about contemporary art now. So that that is for me. I, I'm think, I, I'm quiet now because I'm thinking about such historical framing. You know, when we even talk about Historical um, art canons, you know, this is modernist, this is romantic, you know, at this period, there was this Renaissance period, and people were doing that. Who did we miss? Who was doing something else? 
you know. And when we start thinking about that, we complicate history. We, we complicate the official rendition of history. And also to allow ourselves, to allow our subjectivities in the, in the framing of history. And so there are all these um, people who might have practiced, especially women practitioners. We don't know much about them, you know. And so for me, generally it goes back to maybe we have so much of a clean narrative now to tell. But who and what did we miss? I feel like it's an interesting question. Um, let's talk about poetry. And uh, you were dabbling in poetry before, <laughs> before you became what you are now. Um, wh how did you get into poetry? Do I even know? <laughs> it goes back to, I think, would it be my poem? I don't know. But what I remember as my first thought was that my father was an avid reader of the newspaper. Um, Daily Graphic and the Mirror. So every Saturday, um, he bought the Mirror, and then after he's read it, he would give me to read and tell me that I should find new words. He had bought a dictionary in, his, in the house, so after I had found new words, I would just go to the dictionary, find the meaning, and then use those words in sentences, and then he would check them if I had used them correctly. So I think he was training me in the academic sense, right? But I think when we were transferred, so that this would be post two thousand and four. We were transferred. He was transferred because he was the I was just processing him. We were transferred to Asomaso in Ofenso North District. One of the times we bought um, the the mirror, and there was, I think. I think it was the Macmillan Prize. There were these two books that had won a prize. And innocently, with my arrogant self, said that, you know what, I too could be a writer. And so I started writing without any, any tangible mentor. I started writing in the margins of the Ghanaian imaginaries, you know. Somebody like me wasn't supposed to be writing at the time that I was writing, and I, at that time I was I was in I think primary six or yeah primary six, so that would be like two thousand and four two thousand and five or thereabout you know, and so just by being on my own, I could and no I forgot one so the 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 major intervention in me saying that I could write for myself was that our headmaster had gone to a conference. I think it was a meeting of head, head teachers of primary and um, second cycle institutions or so. And he had made a list. So when he came there to back to the school, he wrote the list, a long list on the blackboard, right? And I couldn't write all of that. So I wrote a few. And the ones that I wrote included a poetry anthology. Um, I've forgotten the title now, but it was by a professor at Legon in in Nigeria. Um, I think um, I can't remember. It had it had this green cover, and so that was my 
official initiation to poetry. You know, and in that early tradition of writing in, in, in Africa, you had many of them having um, nationalist, Marxist, leftist um, leaning. And I think that part of what I learned um, came from that. I, my poet, my favorite poet from that era would be the Gio, you know, the man who it was said that he loved Africa like his wife. And, and, and for me, that was really instrumental in the way that I think, I think now. Um, yeah, so I think that was my journey to, to, to writing, but I didn't know that I had, I had accumulated so much by just living just by being a boy growing up, you know. And and I really thank God that I was born in Asante Mampong. I didn't know. Because in Mampong we had Kosiyan uh, Pofoje, who was a great highlifer. If you do good, you do for yourself, if you do that, that was the guy who sang that song. And he had a concert party also, um, group, the Kumapim Royals, you know. And they were playing and doing concert parties. So even before I understood the concert party tradition, I was experiencing it in the 1990s as a boy growing up, right? You had cinema showings. I, I, somewhere in the 1990s, I saw her in Lord. Um, there was this hotel called, um, Midway. And there was another called, um, Video City. Video City was, was operated by Charles Alinjima, who, was one time big financier of Kumasiya Santi Kotoko. And when Kotoko was winning its last African Cup, he was the guy with um, Mr. Baiwa who recently died. And so Mampon was that a hotbed of, of, of stories, of cultures that I never realized, you know. I never realized that Video City was that big because that man was also a patron. Alenjima was a patron of second-hand dealers in Kantamanto. He got so much money, and that's what he used for the for Kotoko. But also, he produced the first video movie in Ghana, right? Even though he wasn't successful, you know, because he wanted to run the things differently. The insider people who were into cinemas also wanted to run, write, run it differently. So he he never came back to video. But that man came from Ampong. Of course, Yampo Fadi came from Ampong. Then there was a big funeral in 2000. I think there was Mr. Jenny Mbwatin. And I, I never knew him. But right at, at the turn of the, of, of the millennium, all these big politicians descended on Mampo, right? So almost the entire JECO 4 cabinet were in Mampo for that funeral. I saw um, Jacob Bichabilamte, all these people. And then through the same regime's reconciliation effort, we had the reburial of um, uh, uh, a FIFA, Imam. I have never seen any funeral as big as that one. And so I didn't know that my body was collecting all these materials. I didn't know that my body was making meaning of the Wednesday market. And you know, these smaller towns and big towns, we have this. Uh, calendars, you know, calendars that are made of event um, photographs. So maybe if there's an immigration of the president, people come up with a calendar and then there are photos of the immigration or if Kotoko wins a major 
trophy or something, they do that, right? And so I remember um, the the late um, Hasofo player, um, Samukwe. I remember his calendar because uh, Azuma Nelson was shaking the hand of the widow. I remember the Indian man that the Indian uh, how do we call doctor something something you know all these these weird stories Ninja and Tola who, the two soldiers who were the two policemen who were murdered in Ablekuma by um, Langa Atino. I didn't know that that visual exposure planted a lot of things in me you know so when I grew uh, these things were bugging me. So I wanted to understand those things. So all the stories that I'm telling you now, many of them came from Ghana Web, right? Because I, I remember somebody was, Mr. Jamie Boati, who died and uh, all these politicians came for his funeral. Then I realized that, oh, he was a deputy, you know, a, a deputy secretary of MPP at the point. So he was a big shot. In the Buzia um, Demo tradition of, of Ghanaian politics. I didn't know that. It was recent that I found out, you know. And for me, that is, that is why it's important, I think, that we have to produce enabling environments for children. Because we never know who we are producing. And maybe we lost the next Einstein because the person didn't get a good environment to operate. And I feel that children are smart. They are way intelligent that, that we give them credit in for. And there are ways that they learn and they know things that we ourselves as adults haven't even fully comprehended. And and for me, that is my long journey to writing, to poetry, to curating, to history, to everything else. You know, you have said earlier that critique it's a labor of love. Would you say same about your style of writing, especially poetry? Would you say that your poetry is a labor of love to the world? It depends. I mean, it depends. I think that when I started, the model that I knew was the nationalist, early first generation, post-colonial African writers, David Diop, Wally Shoyinka, um, all the others. And so there was this particular vision that I was writing to, responding to, because that was the world that I knew, right? So I was participating in that tradition. So in that sense, I would say that, and I think when I, I, I was moving away, I think I wrote a poem to say that to the nationalist who died. And, and I was referring to myself in that poem because I wrote in that tradition for such a long time, and I thought to myself that, oh God, this is so restricting, you know, because I found out these people who were writing other in other traditions, you know, and I realized that, oh, there could be different imaginaries, you know, as opposed to what I already knew. So I gave myself the opportunity to learn and to to look at things differently. So I would say that. The entire journey is a labor of love, you know, but not the poems themselves because they speak to different things. 
So, I don't know if this is something you are willing to talk about, but I want to talk about it. So, if you are willing to, please let me know. When your mother died, how did right. it affect your writing? I, I never wrote. I never wrote because I... I think I wrote just a, two essays, very short ones, because I, I agree with T.G. Cole. Right. I, I, I write about things. I don't write them. Right. And so it's easier for a writer to wake up and say, my mother died and put it in an essay. My style is different. I would like to talk about the memories. I would like to talk about how she picked a mirror and said to me that she could no more hold the mirror because she was getting old and her her wrinkles were showing and as such she couldn't pick the mirror. I would like to use that mirror to think about my mother. I would like to think about mother through um, the war clock that we carried from different towns that my father um, was transferred from and to, you know. I, I think that that is just my style of being subtle and Tijuko actually says that that he traffics in sub, um, subtleties, and I like subtleties because I feel that subtleties also ha, has um, has this way of um, expanding, right? Because by tra by trafficking in subtleties, I am opening the space for subtleties and for people to bring up their own interpretations. So somebody might look at the piece and might not even realize that I am talking about death or of my mom or something of that sort. And so for me, it's just a stylistic issue. Yeah, but what I guess my question is moving more towards, and so something I want to be clear is that, what does experience teach you about grief? I, I have been I have been grieving the poems way, way, way before she passed. And and when she passed, I said to myself that there could not be any more grief poems that I could write because I had been practicing grief for such a long time. And I didn't want to go back to, to, the, to the idea of grieving. And that comes from the tradition that I was so much steeped in, the nationalist. Because by the 70s, the visions that they had, were crumbling down with coups and disappointments with um, some of the fighters that they fought alongside with and stuff like that, you know. So they started grieving, you know. They long grieved the country. And that tradition I stood in, I was practicing grief. Grieving for a country that I thought I knew but didn't know, you know. And so going back to those poems, I feel that I have done enough of grieving, you know. And maybe it's time to look at other things. Okay. Um, now I just want to talk about um, the next chapter of your academic pursuit. What do you intend to achieve as a mission statement if, you were, if, if, if there was such a thing like that for, I guess, the body of work that you are working on? I, I would want to say that <laughs> I want to first of all survive and, and hopefully I end this 
the, the trust of people that I so desperately want to tell their stories. Because I, I want to do a work that is important to people. And I, I say this because I did a work in war and I was interviewing um, chiefs from the Wanap Palace. And about two or three people referred a book to me that, oh, you should go and read Ivor Wings, um, The Wa and the Wala, um, and the Wala people. And I thought to myself, what did this scholar do right? That years later, people could refer that, oh, if you disagree or if you think I am lying, read this book, it's there. And for me, that's the sort of impact that I want to have. You know, I, I would like to open up to, to people who might have been or who might be on similar um, path that I was on, I have been on and will be on. I, I really want to own discipline disciplines i i feel that if people are really enough open enough to to reconsider things the way they are from what they, they've been previously looking at it from they should be given the opportunity so i i would be interested in working with with a lot more of historians of medicine historians of race people who are thinking um with with race along the lines of um of urban planning, of segregation, of residency. I, I really want to do something different. And by saying I want to do something different, I mean I'm not going to invent a new field, but to bring different aspects of the knowledge forms that we already know and to radically ask what can these parts produce, you know? And who even said that uh, the total is not uh, doesn't equate to the sum of the parts, you know. And so maybe by just pulling different parts together, the sum might be different. F the total, I mean, the total of, of putting all this, the parts together will be different from the parts that make up the total. Who knows? Who knows the knowledge forms that we will produce when we take a, a transdisciplinary approach to the study of um, urban planning or, or architecture or, or medicine, you know. And medicine particularly because we, we've, we've, been, we've been marginalized, we've been put on the margins of, 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 of the histories of medicine. And so even the histories of medicine is, is an emerging field in, in, in African history. But history, um, medicine has always been there. The early explorers were talking about plants. They were talking about healing practices. Even those who settled on the coast of Africa or, or, or of Accra here, some of them in their books, like the Danish Jew, um, I've forgotten his name, but his book is Danish Jew. He said that had it not been for his African concubine, he would have died. And that is a practice of medicine and nursing right there. But if we look at that test solely through the lens of 
economic or social history or along those lines we miss that single line that gives us an insight into the practice of medicine on the coast on the guinea coast um i i wanted to talk about something but uh, daniel has an interest in politics so i think let's do some politics you are an Nkrumah sympathizer. Um, I, I wouldn't call you an Nkrumah in, this, in, the, in the sense, but you are an Nkrumah sympathizer. What do you think that Nkrumah's vision for, for Ghana really was, if, in your perspective? And how far, um, I mean, in the opposite direction have we come? I mean, how far away have we come from that vision? And do you think, do you believe in the genuineness of that Nkrumah vision? <laughs> Nkrumah, I, well, yeah, you, you, you could be right with, with that designation of being Nkrumah sympathizer. I, I, I tend to look at Nkrumah in his totality, you know. I am not a believer that Nkrumah was a saint holy. I don't believe that he was a devil holy. I think that if what he had available in the time that he was living was really a visionary. He, he could speak things, you know, he had this insight that he could. I mean, like, if anyone who is interested in knowledge production, you should read the, 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 his, his speech at the opening of African studies, the African genius. I don't. I haven't read any African scholar being so clear about African epistemologies like he did in that test, and he wasn't even practicing as a scholar then. But that is also the point. But there, there, despite his good intentions, there were missteps, you know. And I'm not even going to talk about what we already know. I'm talking about things like who hosting the Nazis. At least we know three nurses were hosted by him in, in Accra. And even though I, I think that he wasn't a narcissist, I don't think he believed in, in the narcissist. I think he was being a pragmatist, you know, you know, because these people were highly skilled. And so Hannah, she used Hannah to um, open a flying school in Athena, a horse, horse I've, I've it, but I think his name is Horst something. He was a doctor, and he had opened a hospital in Tita, you know. So uh, the third one, Kelmaya, went on to work with the Food and Agriculture Organization in Cuba, a Nazi in Cuba. <laughs> so I, 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 there were missteps, but I think that Nkrumah is definitely um, is, is definitely complex in, in ways that it's, it's difficult to... You know, I think that he, and that is, that is what makes it difficult to assess him, you know, because I feel like he should, he should periodize and chroma in order to do a better justice to your analysis, you know, because there is this 57 to 60 in chroma who was looking more towards the West, you know, dealing with Israel, dealing with um, West Germany, dealing with um, UK. And there is this post-system Chroma who was looking more towards the East, you know. 
And so, I, I, even though he's a socialist and all, I think first and foremost he's a pragmatist. I think that he, he made use of opportunities and what worked for him. And so, in that sense, I, I come from that tradition of being pragmatist. And so, um, I kind of, you know, understand him from that point. I might not agree with all the choices that he might have made. But we are far from that encromised ideology, you know. And maybe, I mean, I take the Akosu Mudan, for example. In this integrated development plan, there was to be a model town, there was to be a railway, there were to be um, bauxite uh, smelting um, um, companies, and all these Akosu Tester companies and the rest emerge from that, but were we able to sustain that vision? No, you know. Now, ATL is sophisticating under the breath of Chinese imported textiles, you know, and all those things. So we are very far from, I think, what Nkrumah intended for us. But I think that maybe a different question that we could also propose. Is, is that how can we use Nkrumah to think? Because I don't think that Nkrumah could be, as, as, much as, as, as much as a missionary that he was, I don't think that Nkrumah's um, ideas uh, must, might stand the entire period of, of time of humanity. But how could we build up on these ideas that he proposed in the 60s? You know? How could we use that to think and envision our futures. And so I would reframe your question and ask what can Nkrumah do? What can Nkrumahist ideas no, no, do for us living in Ghana in 2022? And for me, it's something that we have to wrestle with, that as much as he was a missionary, he lived his time. And it's for us to also envision our own futures, you know, to think differently, maybe agree and disagree with him and carry forward that vision. We are far off, I think, from what he initially intended, but more importantly, what are we doing with ourselves? Um, I mean, I could ask a thousand questions about different things, but not to digress too much, um, I would like to ask one question that maybe will be the conclusion of the conversation. What one piece of stunning historical information do you think that is very intriguing to you and you like to share, whether in the African or Ghanaian particular context? Oh. I, I could ask you a lot of things, but I just want one. Right. I would, I would go for a commercial sex worker who, who lived in Kumase. He's called Atabasi, right? And so in Akan language, when you hear that people are being called Basifo, right, to mean commercial sex workers, he was organi- an organizer in the late 50s and early 60s, right, in Kumasi. So he, she organized a group of women and sent them to Asantehine, the, the king of Asante, and said to, that, to the Asantehine at that time that we need official recognition from you. So the Asanihini, in response, gave them a patron who was almost like their life patron, the Association of Commercial Sex Workers. And wow! And, <laughs> and, and she and she initiated, and 
for me, this is the killer part. You know, if you know Ghanaian politics, right? She, when National Liberation Movement was formed, that political party was almost like an extension of Asante nationalism, right? So even mm-hmm. all the Asante people who were powerful in CPP started. And the UGCC there, they are moving. Yeah. They started moving, you know, to join um, NLM. So this woman at the point was an NLM supporter. But guess what? When she did the reversal, she came to join CPP and traveled with Nkrumah um, on some of his foreign talks. And we know this only because a newspaper captured the demonstration that she led to the Asante Hini that they needed the, um, they needed the, 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 the patron. So for a woman living living as poorly as she did in fifties and sixties, you know, and being visible with her work, both as a commercial sex worker or uh, a sex worker and as a politician, and so to speak, playing two big sides to get whatever she wanted, I think is an interesting. That is a book that I. Her biography is something that I would die for if I write her biography and the next minute I die. <laughs> that would be a fulfilling adventure because I am also very big on Sadia Hartman and her, her approach to writing, you know. And so how can we use this fragment, this paragraph that appears in the archive that we know of somebody like that? How, even if you don't get any other source, how can we envision her life through that, this fragmentary evidence, you know? And for me, that is why Celia Hartman is really powerful in the way I think also about the archive fragments in histories. And that woman, you know, like, if I eventually get to write that book, I'll be like, I tap and see that bitch. In salutation to me being on that trip for such a long time before producing that, and indeed she was a bitch. I mean, the good way. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I mean, we're going to have another conversation, hopefully sometime, to talk about um, our cover works more detail. But I think this is a good conclusion for today's episode of the Change Africa podcast. We've had the most interesting conversation across different themes, from art, poetry, the personality of Kovinej Ariyabwa, and on a very resounding note of an intriguing piece of history of a, a feminist a sex worker and a politician as far back as the 1950s. This has been, again, another thrilling episode of the Change Africa podcast. My name is Isaac Kujunia and I've had here with me my very good friend, Kwabne Jariyabwa, and my co-host, Daniel Merki. It's um, adios, and see you next time for more interesting conversations with brilliant minds and doers across the continent. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you too, Kwabne.